0: We are in this big book series, cover to cover, where we take one Sunday a week and we go through each book of the Bible. Just as a little telecast forecast, next week you'll hear from our dear friend Robert J. Morgan. I'll be back, and um, Cindy and I are taking a little vacation break, so you are in great hands with Robert Morgan. Some of you might have friends that are Red Sea Rule friends or other of the dozen books that uh, that Robert Morgan has has penned, and uh, bring a friend. It'll be a great, great Sunday, and we look forward to seeing you the following week. In this big book series, uh, one of my big objectives, I remind you who've been with us, those who are newer, why did I do this? Great question. I ask myself that about every Monday. Why did I try to take one book of the Bible and distill it into a 30, 40, 50-minute message? Um, because I still contend we need to step back on this big book. I'm a verse-by-verse guy. I'm a line-by-line guy. I love teaching through Romans for 25 years. I love that sort of stock and trade. That said, it's helpful to step back and get that big picture. And so that's been our objective with this. I did not want to do time-setting dates simply because you can read that in a book. I wanted to step back and say, what do we need from this book, understanding its context and how it applies and what it means today, and that's been my hope. Whether or not that's realized becomes a question to be answered in the future. We looked in the New Testament as Christie reviewed the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of these portrays the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the primary message. And I want you to think for just a moment, we're only technically looking at three years of his life. Granted, we have all the Old Testament leading up to the coming of Messiah. Granted, we have lots of theology and knowledge about the Christ. But technically speaking, we're talking about three years of his life. And I'm struck by that to think about the global and eternal influence just looking at his life for three primary years on planet Earth. Then we looked at the the record of Acts. And this, of course, is the admonition in Acts 1-8, that they will wait in Jerusalem until he sends the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. And the book of Acts is both a, that's an outline, uh, geographically as well as theologically. Because the small, tiny state of Connecticut or New Hampshire, Israel, is going to impact the globe. This little sliver of land with a man that was three years on the planet is going to affect the world. And Acts records that from the admonition and instruction of Acts 1-8. Acts 1-8 is a record of the acts of the apostles, or some might prefer the acts of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit who empowers the disciples to effectually do what they do. And we've got this Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells them at Pentecost. The authentication of that was the speaking in dialectos, known languages, 13 of them in Acts chapter 2. And that was a confirmation that these people had been with Jesus. As the church then grows boundaries, we have the time of Peter, the time of Philip, and the time, largest time of Paul the Apostle. In the back of your real Bible are the so-called missionary journey maps that we've probably never looked at. And those maps trace how with the spread of the gospel went out by this emissary named Paul. Paul, of course, is an ardent enemy of the Christian, of the new church. He is essentially a religious police enforcement officer. And on his so-called road to Damascus, he struck blind. He meets Christ. His life is changed. And you're taking this Jews, Jew scholar and sending him to the Gentile population. The book of Acts tracks that challenge because he's going into territory that knows not Jews. He's going into territory that knows not Judaism. They don't know the story of Moses or Jonah or Abraham or Isaac. And so he's pioneering. And we think of some of our missionary friends that have gone for what's New Tribes or Wycliffe. They go to a culture that doesn't even have a written language. They don't even know the story of Abraham offering Isaac. They don't know the story of King Saul or King David. They don't know anything. And they go in there to take the gospel. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, they most part of the earth. And Paul sets that course. Then we came to the book of Romans, the most doctrinaire book in the Bible perhaps. Um, I love the book of Romans. Uh, I told you last week barnhouse essentially said if i could give one life i give it to the book of romans a prolific communicator was was ahead of his time speaking four five eight times a week all fresh preparations on train cars with cargo uh, those luggage things that your kids used to put in their dorm room at the end of their bed the trunks those were full of books when barnhouse traveled And he took his library with him as he traveled and spoke again and again and again, and then back at the 10th Presbyterian Church in all places, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And from that ministry of the book of Romans, and it's curious how many of you Romans changed your life? It did mine. How many of you? A few of you. Uh, When I started studying Romans in college, it rocked my world. So, the most powerful center, the Washington, D.C., if you will permit me, in antiquity is where Paul is headed in the book of Romans, Romans and how he's talking to those people. The power center of financial wealth, military power, strength. The Roman Empire was arguably the most powerful empire on the planet, save, of course, dynasties, but uh, that was the setting of Romans. Now we looked then Today, we turn the page when we look at the book of 1 Corinthians. I want you to keep this progression in mind, the way our Bibles are organized. We've established the person and work of Jesus in four gospels. We've then looked at the work of the disciples who were promised in the upper room discourse that greater things they would do. The Holy Spirit would be the helper to help you do these things. And the last apostle we're going to read about, technically, is going to be Paul. So now we jump into the first of two letters. There are actually three. We don't have one of them. Two letters that are in your New Testament, First and Second Corinthians. Let me show you, because sometimes these things become, it's in a book. I want you to see, this is a real place. So if we first look at a map, to give you a little idea, uh, Peloponnesia is in this lower area here, the lower left of your screen. It's not marked. And then upper right, where it says the Isthmus of Corinth, that right part, that's Greece. And you can see in the, in the larger, the smaller map, Breakout here. You can see this little piece of land we're talking about. Italy, would be over, the boot would be over here. Here's Crete. So that little tiny piece of land, and in between it, you can see what's called an isthmus, and that was dug in antiquity. It wasn't completed actually until the 1800s. But that isthmus, the next picture, is one that I actually took. We were in Greece a few years ago, Cindy and I, with some friends, and of course it wasn't that way in Paul's time. But in Paul's time, they actually would drag small boats across that canal. Why? Because it's four miles versus 200 open sailing miles. So canals like the Panama Canal are a shortcut. So the engineers, even in antiquity, what? Well, this is a real place. Uh, the next picture you're going to see, there, there are two primary temple complexes. A- ac- sometimes you read Acro-Corinth or Corinth. Acro just means a higher area. So just like we've talked about in, In Jericho, there's old Jericho and new Jericho. They're about a mile apart. The ruins and antiquity of old Jericho are kind of left undisturbed. The Jericho that you may or may not visit is a newer city about a mile away. The same thing is true with Corinth and Acrocorinth. Some of us have been there. You've seen these temple complexes. You've got the temple to Apollo and the temple to Aphrodite. And so archaeologists have reconstructed these things. Uh, The next slide shows you um, some Okay, so remember the Asherah, Asherim, uh, Old Testament, these idols that we talk about? Well, let's come full New Testament and talk about Apollo and Aphrodite and all these gods. Um, not to be too specific, but uh, this woman is endowed for a reason. Because the cultic prostitution of Corinth becomes a byword. And you can see these in the museum there. And then the next image we have one more. So um, this, this basically, go back one sec. So this basically is an area, and we'll talk later about archaeology, but you can see on this particular stone, uh, this the, the verse is actually from Second Corinthians: For this momentary light affliction is uh, 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 the eternal weight of glory. It's a perfect chiasm in the language. Momentary uh, light affliction, eternal momentary eternal eternal weight light weight. Momentary light affliction, eternal weight of glory. Momentary light affliction and glory are juxtaposed. And that's what was carved on this uh, stone. And the next picture shows you a remnant that would have been there in Paul's time. So you've got a cross and some other things I won't delve into for archaeology at this point. But I just want you to see, this is a real place. And if you visit Greece and Turkey and you go there, you'll see a legend. And it will talk about, this is Corinth. This is where Paul was. And so that's the backdrop, the setting of our book. First century Corinth was a leading commercial, a commerce, a commerce and marketing and, and material center. Um, it was infamous for its immorality and paganism, which we'll see in the book. And this is part of Paul's second journey, not his first. There are three, and so he he kind of. You know, increases those, again, if you look at those maps in the back of your Bible, you'll see how each one of them increases. Mind you, those were long trips on sailing vessels. You know, you and I get impatient through a TSA line. We get impatient for a flight delay. I get really impatient if I go to an airport and I've got to stand in that long TSA. Thing. I mean, I've got clear, I've got the pre, I've got all that. I'm going, why? Well, I've got to stand back here with, you know, and I, you know, I'm just not a very good traveler. I don't like to wait. And uh, you think about being on a, on a dock waiting for weeks for them to set sail to stop in Malta for the winter. Next time you complain about being bumped and laying on a cot in an airport, just think about first century travel, and it's a pretty simple thing. It's all relative. Let's talk about the first, first of all, the city of Corinth, and then the church in Corinth to get a backdrop. The city, as I mentioned, was a worldwide commerce. It was depraved and immoral, and it was idolatrous. Uh, Corinth was a Stop! You had to go through, and that isthmus and canal was part of the reason they built it. Even though it wasn't actually—it's a very small canal by today's Um, standards—but even though they drug boats and they would take a shortcut across this to go across country, as opposed to 200 miles of open sea, makes a lot of sense. And so this uh, travel—it's kind of like if you if you fly Delta, you got to go to Atlanta, right? If, you're, if you fly Delta, if you're going from Tennessee to Portland, you're going to go to Atlanta first, right? And so that, that was what Corinth was in the ancient Greek world. Uh, when I read this, this worldwide commerce, depraved culture, and so forth, I think of three words I've talked about again and again, money, sex, and power. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Nothing is new. And in, and in Corinth, we're going to see it in a tremendous volume. The ancient city had a reputation for what is the, the, the ancients called vulgar materialism. Not just wealth, but incredibly lavish wealth. And they used the wealth for immorality's sake. Homer in the Iliad uses this as a synonym for immorality. Plato's Republic, he refers to a prostitute as a Corinthian girl... In a playwright, uh, uh, Philotarius a play that, unless you're a classic person, you would never be exposed to, called Athenius, he writes a burlesque based on that time period, and it, he uses the word Corinthianestes. He's basically calling it the lecher. Um, Aristophanes uses the verb... Corinthianize Corinthianomize as a byword for fornication and Strabo in his geography talks about the vice and wealth of Corinth uh, was around the Aphrodite temple complex and the temple prostitutes Um, there was a proverb at the time not for every man is the voyage to Corinth for uh, music city the house of the rising sun that was Corinth uh, which, by the way, those of you who are in the industry, I did not know Woody Guthrie was one of the first that sang that song. I always thought it was The Animals. What a great name for a band, The Animals. Uh, but that's probably, if you know the song, the version you've heard. And that would be Corinth. That was the epitaph. For 100 years, after 146 B.C., um, you had to go to Atlanta. You had to go through Corinth after this is destroyed because they revolted against Roman power. Remember, the Roman occupation is the power of the day. And they come in and they occupy, we understand that word, right? A foreign military force occupies another country and tries to put it under Roman rule. Well, they resist and they're destroyed because of it. They die trying. A few of the columns remain. You saw the the reconstruction of the Temple of Apollo. It becomes a Roman colony under Julius Caesar in about 27 B.C. Achaia becomes the seat of governing power at that time. And so this is the backdrop and the setting. Geographically, we know it to be true. Literature, we know it to be true. Those I've quoted refer to it. I just simply want you to understand, this is a real place, real ha- really happened, and no one but the, only moderns would dispute it. The ancients all believed Corinth was a real location and Paul the Apostle actually went there. So Paul finds a church there. Acts chapter 18, the first seven verses <coughs> discusses uh, the establishment of the church in Corinth. Now, that's the city. Let's look at the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth uh, is, as Christy mentioned, in the front of my Bible, in the front of 1 Corinthians, I've got the word correction written at the top of my page. If you have a real Bible, that's a good mindset. You must need to read this book understanding he's correcting a lot of issues when he writes the book. This isn't Philippians, this isn't Romans, this isn't Galatians, this isn't the church in Thessalonica. He's correcting the Corinthians. You must keep that in mind, and it will help you tremendously. Uh, Corinth had factions and divisions in the church. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul. Has Christ been divided? Paul writes. Now, not to be too indelicate, but how many of us have I'm of MacArthur, I'm of Swindoll, I'm of Chandler, I'm of you know, fill in the blank. Nothing wrong with having commentaries and commentators and Bible teachers to whom you appeal. Nothing wrong with that. But Paul is, in, is a, a correcting them. Christ has not been divided. You know, if, if you're more of a so and so than you are a Christian, there's a problem, is what Paul is saying in this factious book. Um, they are involved in suing one another. So, we have a whole chapter about why you take a brother to court. We have abuse in the church. And that word, of course, is a, is a, a trigger for a lot of people today. Uh, the abuse had to do primarily, it sounds strange. We have to do some homework. But the cultural abuse of the Lord's Supper was the primary thing Paul was correcting. That these meals were not a little cracker and a little sip, these meals were a, a festival, and they were doing them house to house. And some people were coming in, they were, some were drunk, some were greedily eating. I mean, if you've been to a buffet, you see it played out, right? There's some people at the front of the line getting, you know, seconds and thirds, and other people haven't been to the line. That's human nature. So Paul is abrading them down because, look, this is the Lord's Supper. This is a communal table. It's unique to the body of Christ. You're to celebrate the Lord's life, death, burial, resurrection. This isn't a food orgy, as it were. That seems a little far stretched for our sensibilities, but that is what was going on in the church. And then, interestingly to me, and maybe to you, is the misuse of spiritual gifts. We'll talk about this more in a minute. But chapters 12, 13, and 14 are about the spiritual gifts. Essentially, he's saying you're doing the gifts wrong. Now, this is a real head scratcher for a theologian. How do you misuse a spiritual gift? And it's really not that hard of an answer. You're not using it the way God intended, or you're leading with, well, I have the gift of blank, and so I know whatever. And so Paul is very clear in his correction of the misuse of spiritual gifts, chapters 12, 13, and 14. Well, again, we've talked already about the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea, about a four-mile connection with this isthmus. Northern Greece was a a more powerful, larger piece of geography than, of course, the area below. Um, And and all all this history goes back to this church is being planted. By the way, they estimate about 700,000 residents in Corinth at that time. And about two-thirds of them were handcuffed to the slave trade or prostitution. Uh, they were Las Vegas and the House of the Rising Sun on steroids. That was Corinth. One of the things that struck me, and that was my first time in Greece in 2016, was and I've been to Israel so many times, and what you find with pillars and columns and reliefs and uh, lentils are carvings of mostly plants, some animals, olive, fronds. There are some so-called Corinthian capitals they are Doric and iconic, and some of you know your architecture better than me, but there were no faces, no human bodies. You get on a boat, and you go from Caesarea to the Greek world, and essentially, it was modern-day pornography. And when you walk the streets of Ephesus or Corinth, you see these things in abundance and this is what this Jew, Jew, Paul has walked into when he goes into these Greek cultures. Um, he writes this letter as a response, and I won't take you down this road too far because unless you're a BSF or a preceptor, community Bible study person, you probably don't have interest. But the rabbit hole of why he writes this letter seems there were three people that formed a contingent go ask Paul these questions, we need answers. And that precipitates the writing of First and Second Corinthians. Um, let's talk some about the themes and purpose of the book. I've already mentioned the basic theme truly is correction. Uh, Paul is correcting both the individual believers and the church. And this is important to keep in mind when you read it. There's sometimes he's talking about people by name, and sometimes he's talking about the church that is in Corinth. The cross of Christ was designed to transform us to make us what we weren't. Dead men and women locked in our sin going to hell. And the gospel was to change that. And this question will be debated until we die. How much change? Can you measure change? Who's responsible for saying you're changing or I'm changing? That's a, that, that's a, a great example of how social media, and I use that in the Christian moniker, i just call it decent Christian people who are online spewing what they believe. Uh, These questions have never been uh, resolved in the heart of a lot of men and women, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Nobody likes to be corrected, right? Did any of your children, when they were doing something wrong, and you've heard my little thing, you know, and you say, uh, stop hitting your sister, you need to take care of her. You're her brother. You need to protect her. Oh, father of mine, thank you for reminding me my job is to care for my little sister. Oh, father of mine, what wisdom can you give me to make me better? Right? No child ever says that. Um, we don't like being corrected. Don't forget chapters 12, 13, and 14. 13 is about what? Love. Some call it the greatest love chapter in the Bible. But this letter is clear about its correction. There's disunity, there's immorality, um, there are attitudes toward one another, attitudes toward Paul's going to come out. And in chapter chapter 4, verse 21, he talks about he he would like to come visit him with a rod. This book would not play well in many public schools today. Because this book is about calling people out it is impossible for me to read this book and not make the parallel comparisons to the Christian community in America today. With a few changes of verb tenses and names, this is America, and it's American Christianity. Individuals and corporately. Um, let's look at some of these broad stroke observations. The divisions and the factions and the selfishness and the immorality were so rampant. Um, In our culture, and I've used this phrase for years, it maybe isn't the most accurate, I call it the, the gods of personal rights, our gods of our civil rights. We've turned our personal preference, our personal rights into a god, little g. I am fill-in-the-blank. I identify with fill-in-the-blank. I am fill-in-the-blank. It's my right. It's my freedom. Nothing new under the sun. When we take sin and we try to sanctify it, we're doing the same thing the Corinthian church did. The wholesale disregard for his church and yet trying to still be a church. Some of you are old enough and you follow these things how great Bible teaching pastors go off the reservation. And they start out teaching the book of Leviticus. How do you plan a church teaching Leviticus? Well, a guy did it famously. And then in his later years he never talked about sin. He never talked about the gospel. He never talked about consequences for sin. He never used the word judgment. You can't use the word judgment anymore. And he completely abandons everything he's ever believed and flips entirely theologically. How does this happen? Um, One of the challenges we all have in every generation is the definition and redefinition of theology. When you say God is love, when you say love wins in the end, when you say you're judging people, you are redefining theology. And we want to be cautious and careful. Um, We don't go around you know, with the hammer beating people for what they think. Um, No one likes to be corrected. We don't like the word judgment anymore. This book is in your face, both. It it seems, and you know, you can improve on this. I, I think there's two guiding observations when people go down these channels. One is, if they believe some of the things that, you know, I I can be who I am, I can identify with such and such, I can live this way. I have a friend whose daughter moved in with her boyfriend, and she was raised in a good Christian home, and uh, her mom and dad weren't mad, they weren't in her face, they weren't yelling and screaming at her, they weren't you know beating her over the head with a Bible. They just said, you know, God doesn't honor this. We love you. This isn't good. Quote, she says, I've talked to the Lord, and we have an agreement. You see, when you make God in your own image, you, do, you can do whatever you want. Corinth was doing it, and we have done it. And the factions and divisions within the body of Christ are no different than my experience, my identity, my personal freedoms, my passions, my wants, dreams, desires outweigh what the text says. And if you tell me otherwise, you're judging me. And that's a, you know, that's a trigger word. You can't judge anybody. Well, if you read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you're going to read a lot of, quote, judgment. When you raise your children and they do something wrong, you're judging them. Your actions, your attitudes, your behaviors are wrong. We don't lie. We we don't hurt our sibling. You don't break something or take something that's not yours. You're You're so judgmental. If you're a parent, you're so judgmental. Let your child blossom. Let them do whatever they want. With Samuel Taylor Coleridge of Memory Service and he was there was this interchange between a friend of his whose children were wild and he believed in just letting his children express their freedom. So he has them over to his home for a meal. This is in the UK. Which, who pride themselves on their gardens, which you know, can be a very small backyard, but it's immaculately designed and beautiful. And this guy's garden was nothing but overrun weeds. And after the meal, they retire to the garden for whatever, the pork, cherry, and a cigar. And he says, you call this a garden? This is nothing but a pile of weeds. Quote, I was letting it express itself. The sin nature will only bear for sin. Somebody has to come along and say, no, that's not right. Don't miss that chapter 13 is a chapter full of love. Don't miss in the midst of correcting people who are very proud with their spiritual gifts and misusing them and sleeping around uh, all kinds of bizarre things in Corinthians. Uh, don't miss that he says love. And then he gives this list which we have taken and put on all sorts of uh, pictures, and what wed- I don't know how many weddings I've done when the love chapter has to be re- re- That's great. Put your name in it. That's great. It's all fun and dandy. This is in a context of what you're doing wrong. Do not miss that. Um, the challenge we place today is I'm either deeply in sin and self-governed by my own redefinition, or I don't know Christ and I'm saying loudly that I do. So, for example, when a person is, quote, living in sin, and that's hard to define, but they're in rebellion, they're thumbing their nose at the Word of God, they're doing whatever they want, it's one of two possibilities. They're ensconced in sin and doing what they want to do, or they never knew Christ. Now, do you and I judge that person in those categories? Maybe in your mind, maybe in the way you address them, but you don't say it to them. Let the Holy Spirit do that work. But if someone doesn't speak clearly the truth to them, how will they know? We do not get to take a Bible and a ball-peen hammer and go around straightening out the world. We do get to be grounded in God's Word, led by God's Spirit, surrounded by God's people, and going in the same direction. And this is where I think most Christians have gotten afraid. We're trying to fight a fight you can't win. You can't win the change of nomenclature. You can't win the change of language. You know, you can read a passage together and say, you know, the Lord says, don't be unequally eloped. The Word says, one man, one woman for life. The Word says, sex is a wonderful expression inside the confines of a lifelong heterosexual marriage. The Word of God said, you can can say that without being mad about it, but it takes some courage in a culture that's going to hate you. It takes some courage and kindness in a culture. It's going to go after you, perhaps. Years ago, uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Bill Lawrence, was speaking in a conference, and he said this line, Be free of the fear of men and full of the fear of God. And I've never forgotten it. Be free of the fear of men and full of the fear of God. And if you are operating under your fear of God, and you've, taught me, you've heard me talk about fear, this is a holy, h-o-l-y fear. There needs to be a little tremulous nature in the way we go back to, you know, when Dorothy went down to see who was behind the curtain, a little tremulous fear there. Not terror, not like a horror flick about to be realized, but there needs to be a little caution, and the only way you and I can approach him, of course, is to the person and work of Jesus Christ. When the culture turns the language of truth into a lie, you and I have to think critically, have to behave well, have to appeal to God, have to pray, have to be surrounded by good thinking before we joust the dragon. And you may get burned. Some more general observations, um, and again, this leads more to application than precisely the passage, which we're going to look at in a moment. But it strikes me as I read through Corinthians again and again and again, you know, Michael, be in the world, not of it. How many of us have heard that phrase? Be in the world, not of it. Uh, John in 1 John as well in the Gospel references this concept. Um, It's a knife edge for Christianity. And I still maintain Western Christianity, and I mean America precisely, lives on this knife edge of what they can do that's not sin without being legalistic, perhaps more than most cultures. You can disagree with me on that. Uh, Chapter 1 is a chapter of unparalleled Christology. If you read through chapter 1 today or tomorrow morning your devotions, circle every time Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, God. It's, it's like every verse has got two and three references to these names. He starts out this corrective book talking about Jesus Christ our Lord, Christ our Lord, God the Father, Christ. Jesus. And again, you bsf -er and you're all over this. So every time there's a reference to one of these terms, you're going, I think in chapter 1 he's talking about the Lord. I think it's pretty clear that's his point in chapter 1. He's talking about Christology. And you know, that's a great place for us to land at any time in our life. Who is this Jesus, and what does he mean to you? If you and I are to be more like Christ, how? Well, you better study the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we're to be more like Christ, how many times have I asked you this question? Are you any more like Jesus than you were last year? Is Michael any more like Christ than he was at 15? And growth is not, it's not a given thing. You know, it's going to be like this. It's not, nobody does this. Not even Paul the Apostle does this. There's ups and downs, there's starts and stops, there's failures, and that's the Christian life. But your objective is not to be more like Christians, but to be more like Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, we read, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh. As to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to. And really the Greek stops there. You were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you're not yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Um, Our oldest daughter has two boys. And uh, they're, they're three and I guess... 16, 18 months, they're a, hoot, they're a blast. They're the best grandchildren on the planet. Um, and they love their Saba. And all's right with the world. Um, when they're little, uh, I follow what mom says what they can eat. And I remember with Isaac, uh, our first grandson, asking, well, when do you introduce solid foods? Because, you know, by the way, us who are older and raised children, everything we did was wrong. Our children should be completely jacked up. Well, they are, I guess, you know. Uh, I, I tell them all the time, it's amazing you guys ever survived. We never had all these things. And, you know, anyway, I guess every generation would feel that way. But when do you give them, like, you know, a cracker or a cookie or a peanut butter? Oh, you can't do that now, Dad. Okay, you know, just write it down. I'll do what you tell me to do. When they're gone, hey, try this. As my wife says, grandparents' prerogative. Um, they can't yet handle solid food until a certain time. And I don't even know what that time is, and I don't care. I just do what my daughter tells me. Point is, Paul's saying, you know what Paul's saying? First Corinthians is a bowl of milk. Let that sink in for a minute. If you can't walk through a non-divisive Christianity, if you can't walk through what a heterosexual marriage is, if you can't walk through certain sexual things are sin, if you can't walk through, you don't sue a Christian, if you can't walk through a proper understanding of what gifts are supposed to do, if you can't walk through the gospel clearly, you're still drinking milk. I'll never forget the first time I saw this was in college. I wheeled back in my little desk chair at my house I was in college and went, Michael, if you can't walk through Corinthians and understand this corrective book, you're a baby. Isn't that what he's saying? I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. You were not yet able. Indeed, you're still not yet able. This is like a book to a two-year-old Christian. You don't throw tantrums. You don't hit your brother or sister. You don't put a key in the light socket. You don't disrespect your mom. You, you learn to say yes and obey mom and dad. You learn to be nice to people. This is a bowl of milk. The book then transitions into a topic of liberty. And this is another very, very present issue in our culture. And I like to use the pendulum of licentiousness, liberty, and legalism. Licentiousness is living like I want to live and saying it's okay, this is the way God made me, and I know, and God and I have an agreement, etc. Legalism is when you or I impose a set of do's and don'ts on you that Christians don't do X. Christians don't do Y. I don't know how many organizations have some kind of policy you have to. Christian colleges, Christian uh, organizations, um, uh, over, over my lifetime, you know, you get these forms. I remember one organization had a, a cultural form and a biblical form. You had to sign the document. All it was was legalism, do's and don'ts, licentiousness. Do whatever you want; it doesn't matter. Legalism is just as insidious, maybe more insidious. And liberty is in the middle. Now, I use the pendulum illustration because the only time I'm ever in balance is when I go from one extreme to the other, and very momentarily. And my liberty can be viewed as licentiousness to some people and can be viewed as legalism to some people. And that's why this is such an imperative book to understand, um, you and I have incredible freedom in Christ. More freedom than we ever had before Christ. But we don't use that freedom to sin. We have freedom to obey. We have freedom to say yes. We have freedom to say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's okay. I'm not going to do that. You can do that. And that's where judgment can come in. Um, I find it fascinating that Christians today are so clever at justifying their licentiousness or their legalism. How many times have you been in a situation where someone told you a Christian shouldn't do blank? Christians don't do blank. And some of you remember when the movie ratings came out. I have any Catholic friends? I grew up Roman Catholic. Parents went to daily mass, parochial schools, altar boy for third through eighth grade, uh, daily mass for seasons in my life. I mean... I can still do it all. It comes back just like that. And um, it was fascinating within the Catholic Church how some things were just incredibly legalistic but some of the most licentious people I ever met. You get drunk and smoke dope and sleep around on a Saturday night, but you got better go to Mass. You better go to Mass. And I'm not saying that's universal, but that experience taught me so much about licentiousness, liberty, and legalism, and how we navigate these things. How do you live with liberty? Um, chapters 12 and 14, again, I mentioned are about the spiritual gifts. And I, I have spent so much time over my years as a pastor with people in an office or over coffee or in their homes talking about spiritual gifts. And these, things, these trends come and go. You know, we were talking the other day with some friends about when the DISC became very popular, Carlson company, the DISC, and then Myers and Briggs, and then the Fire OB. I, I was trained on the MMPI, I was in college, 6, 566 or 650, I forget. a lot of questions. And the MMPI you had to take, Fire O B, Strong's Inventory Analysis, all these tests we took. I had a friend who trained me in the Carlson time, At that time was the DISC at that time. He trained me in how to be a certified Carlson guy. and. Uh, at one point, because people get obsessed with, you know, their Enneagrams, they get obsessed with who they are and what it tells them about themselves. And there's value. Don't hear me throw these out. There's value in understanding these assessments. But he said to me at one point, he stopped and said, Michael, don't let a pen and paper test tell you who you are. And as I've said, and you've heard me say this, my psychologist friend Floyd Sharp is with the Lord. Whenever we would had these conversations, he would look at his finger and he would turn it and he would go, every one of my fingerprints are unique. Everyone's on the planet are unique. Why do we try to put personality in four or five boxes? Those are helpful things. They help us understand motivations, you know. But what what we all know, a strength taken one step too far is the greatest liability. If you're a person who talks a lot, you talk too much. If you're a person who doesn't talk, you don't talk enough. If you're a rule follower, you can overfollow the rules. On and on we can go. Your strength taken one step too far becomes your liability. Well, these sign gifts were the big debate, and they still are. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Please watch this passage carefully. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This passage is a beautiful passage in so many ways. Number one, the Trinitarian Godhead is articulated in this passage. I collect single volume theology books. I've got all kinds of theology books, but I like single volume theology books because I like to say, what do you do about Christology? What do you do about the you can't because most people aren't going to read you know, John Owen's 16 volumes. They're just not going to do it. So my, my question is, how do you, you distill that question in a few paragraphs? And I've yet to see, I think maybe one, comment, one theology ever points to this as an argument for the Trinity. I think it's a beautiful verse in the argument for the Trinity. Look at, look at the verse on the screen again. There are varieties of gifts, same spirit, varieties of ministry, same Lord Rise of effects, same God. And I think there's a progression that Paul is teaching us here. You're endowed by the Spirit of God, by the, these holy gifts, because they're a spiritual gift. Technically, the word in Greece is charisma, charismata. So you're given this gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells you in me, and he gives us a gifting. But then the outworkings of that, the ministry of it, which, by the way, the word ministry means serving in the Bible. A minister isn't a title of, oh, he, he or, she is a minister. That means servant. The ministers in the Old Testament were servants of the temple complex. So to serve the effect of that is the Lord and then the outworking the varieties of effects. If something good comes from this is God. So it's a beautiful Trinitarian thing. Must move on. Secondly we see the varieties, gifts, spirits, uh, ministries, and effects. Each one of them is a recurred theme and a recurred phrase. And the last part of this is the most important part that most people overlook. The last part of verse 7, you should underline in your Bible, for the common good. For the common good. The gifts that God gave His church, and we could let's just point at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit indwelled, when you and I trusted Christ You were endowed with the Holy Spirit, the person, and he endowed you with the spiritual gift. My observation over 40 years has been most people's gifting is kind of hardwired, but it's accentuated when the Holy Spirit comes in your life. So if you're a communicator, you might be a teacher. If you're a critical thinker, before you know Christ, you might have the gift of discernment. If you're already a leader and you become endowed by the Spirit, wouldn't you be a good Christian leader? Don't make this harder than it has to be. So gifts, talents, abilities, interests, the way you're wired. uh, Why can't we say that's how God is gifting you? Don't miss the last part. For the common good. The point of the gift was for the common good. Thirdly, um, or thirdly was the common good and I want you to notice here one of the phrases, some of you come from a charismatic background they will often appeal to the uh, he speaks in tongues, edifies himself the term edification there is worth your time and study but you have to go back to 12 verse 7 the gifts weren't given for self edification the gifts were given for the common good and that's why the corrective nature of chapter 12, 13, and 14 to me is so critical in 1 Corinthians. Because what he's saying is, this is the head-scratcher, you're misusing your gifting. How do I misuse these gifts? Well, read chapter 12 and 14. And I don't care what you do, if you don't do this lovingly the way Christ intended, it's wrong. A leader who is in a position of leadership, who uses the gift of leadership to bully his or her way, is not a spirit-controlled person using that gift for the common good. And you can carry that illustration out on your own. We must end with chapter 15 because it is Paul's clarity of the gospel unlike any other book in the Bible, perhaps. 1 Corinthians 15, the first nine verses. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you that was of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, which is the, also the name for Peter. Then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. They haven't died yet. But some have fallen asleep, a euphemism for death. Then he appeared to James, and then to, uh, then to all the apostles, and last of all as the one untimely born, that phrase is a very disgusting term. That's Essentially, I won't say it, but that's essentially a birth gone wrong. He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. The entire chapter deserves your attention. But the gospel is so clear here that he lived, that he died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead. And you've heard me say this over and over and over. You've got to talk about the burial. Why? Because that's the confirmation. He lived, he died, he was buried. And he was raised from the dead, overcoming death. So chapter 15 is worth your time and study. He goes on, I won't read it, to basically say, if Jesus to clearly say, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then we're teaching a lie and you're a fool. The gospel hinges on, was he in fact resurrected? Step back on the book of Corinthians. It's a corrective letter. Uh, Christians are doing things their own way. They're doing what they want to do. They're calling their sin sanctified. Well, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. I want to sleep with my mother-in-law. I mean, bizarre things in this book. And 2 Corinthians is more of the same. Um, What's he saying? In the first chapter, get your Christology straight. In the second to last chapter, because chapter 16 will be about people primarily. In chapter 15... Get the gospel straight. What a great bookend. Do you understand who this Jesus is? He's not your buddy, he's not your chum, he's not your friend, the way we use that term. He's your Savior. He's God. Now get the gospel straight. What a great bookend. If you get the personal work of Jesus straight, and you understand what the gospel means, then you can correct the things we see in the local church.